Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The truth is, it has become ridiculous in Mr. Jefferson and his supporters to pretend that, in their present system of hunting the Federalists like wild beasts, they are governed by any principle or principles which will bear a vowel, or can be for a moment supported under any pretense whatever. A deadly revenge, an inexorable rancor, a vindictive malice against all and every one who has dared to differ in sentiment from them, however good, however virtuous, however meritorious he may be, marked and controls the measure of those now in power. To be a Federalist is a sure mark for destruction, if destruction be within their power to command. The first problem that landed on Thomas Jefferson's desk after being inaugurated as the third president of the United States was what to do about all of the Federalists that filled the ranks of the federal bureaucracy. It's this issue that will be our main focus in this episode of the Presidencies of the United States. Welcome, dear listener. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Before we dive in, I'd like to thank Moxie LaBouche of the Your Brain on Facts podcast for providing the intro quote for this episode. I got to know Moxie earlier this year. Since then, I've become a regular listener to Your Brain on Facts and thought that listeners here might be interested as well. Moxie picks a special topic for each episode and takes listeners on a journey through history. Check it out by going to the website at yourbrainonfacts, all one word, dot com, or you can just search for Your Brain on Facts on your favorite podcatcher. I'll also post a link on the source notes page for this episode, as well as my social media. Now, in the modern day, 2019, as of this recording, we have an idea of a federal bureaucracy that employs millions. In 1801, however, Jefferson came to office to head a government composed of around 600 positions. Of those, Jefferson identified 316 that came under his direct authority to appoint or remove. As Federalists had chiefly been in charge of the government for the past 12 years, it should come as little surprise that they had largely appointed people who were aligned with them to positions in the government. Indeed, in the few high-profile instances that we've discussed in previous series where men from the opposition were appointed to governmental posts, Jefferson as Secretary of State, James Monroe as U.S. Minister to France, it often resulted in friction and animosity. However, 1801 had witnessed the opposition become the party of government, and just as the Federalists had felt that only fellow party members could be trusted to carry out orders from the top efficiently, so too did the Democratic-Republicans feel that only people from their ranks could help them to run the federal apparatus. There was only one problem, though what to do about all the Federalists that currently had governmental posts. To tackle the issue, Jefferson met with three of his advisors, Secretary of War Henry Dearborn, Attorney General Levi Lincoln, and his intended Secretary of the Treasury, Albert Gallatin, in the parlor at Conrad and McMunn's boarding house in Washington on March 8th. And, from the notes that Jefferson kept of the meeting, it seems that they went state by state to assess the situation. Even only a few short days after his inauguration, Jefferson was feeling pressure from Democratic Republicans to make changes that would work to their benefit. 
As noted by Malone, quote, the pressure on him to remove Federalists from office was far less in the southern and western states than in those to the north and east, where partisan strife was fiercer. In addition to working to the political advantage of the party to have members well-placed in areas where the Federalists were still competitive, many of the posts would provide a financial advantage to the person holding the office. Again, from Malone, quote, Many of the officers in government positions got most or all of their remuneration from fees. Notable among these were the collectors at the chief ports, who were the best-paid public employees after the president himself. A few of them got almost as much as the Secretary of the Treasury and the Chief Justice together. Political appointments were seen as potentially a way to reward friends and close associates who had supported Jefferson and the party in the rise to power. The main obstacle to this new power becoming a complete sweep and removal of all Federalists from office, however, was Jefferson himself. Jefferson knew that he would be setting a precedent with how he approached the situation, as this was the first peaceful transfer of power from one party to the next since the ratification of the Constitution. So he knew that all eyes would be on him in his actions. Thus, he made detailed lists as to which appointments he wanted to make. As Malone points out, quote, One reason why he drew up lists with such care was that he was blamed on the one hand for making too many new appointments, and on the other hand, for making too few. Even his close associates worried that Jefferson would be too hesitant to remove Federalists from office and too eager to seek a reconciliation that many felt was impossible. Virginia Governor James Monroe wrote to Jefferson the day before the inauguration that he should, quote, be assured with the leaders of the Royalist Party, you will never have a friend. With principles so opposite, it is impossible you should. The spirit of the Republican Party must be supported and preserved, which can only be done by a bold and magnanimous policy. The opposing parties can never be united. I mean the leaders of them, because their views are as opposite as light and darkness. The discomfited Tory party, profiting of past divisions and follies, which have contributed much to overwhelm them, will reunite their scattered force against us. This party has retired into the judiciary, in a strong body where it lives on the treasury and therefore cannot be starved out. While in possession of that ground, it can check the popular current which runs against them and seize the favorable occasion to promote reaction, which it does not despair of. It is a desperate party because it knows it has lost the public confidence. It will intrigue with foreign powers and therefore ought to be watched. Your difficulties will indeed be great, yet I trust and believe you will surmount them if you will pursue the dictates of your excellent judgment rather than the benevolent suggestions of your heart. Despite the fears of many associates who wrote to Jefferson with similar sentiments around the time of his inauguration, Jefferson understood that he would never win over the high Federalist leaders. However, he knew that he had to try, quote, to reconcile the large body of moderates. In order to do so, he would have to set some ground rules as to when he could justify removals from office as being for the good of the nation, rather than just the good of the party. The first instance that he identified was for appointments made by his predecessor after he had known that he had been defeated in the election. As discussed in episode 2.24, Adams continued to make appointments at the end of his term, though he knew as of mid-December that he had not been re-elected to another term. This issue is one in which there is still disagreement in the present day, 2019 as of this recording, and Jefferson took the stance of some in the modern era that a president whose party had been voted out of office should not make any further appointments. Thus, 
Jefferson and his administration would quickly target those appointments for potential removal. However, there was one subgroup that fell into this category that we need to give a little extra consideration. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. With the federal judiciary, once judges were appointed, confirmed, and took their oaths, they could remain in office indefinitely until they were removed through impeachment, resigned, or died. As federal judicial positions have been overwhelmingly filled by Federalists over the past 12 years, this meant that there was little Jefferson could do initially to reshape that part of the government. That being said, there were some last-minute judicial appointments made by Adams that Jefferson might just be able to make null and void. Congress had passed an act on February 27th creating new positions of justices of the peace for the District of Columbia, and under what he saw as his authority, Adams had appointed 42 individuals to those positions on March 2nd. These appointments had in turn been confirmed by the Federalist-led Senate of the 6th Congress on the last day of its session. However, the actual commissions had not been delivered before the departure of the Adams administration, so they were now in the possession of the incoming administration. Given what we've already discussed about Jefferson's views, it's not hard to predict what the new president did. Jefferson treated these commissions as invalid and thus would not order them delivered. Instead, he sent his own appointments to the new Senate of the 7th Congress for confirmation on March 5th. Now, it should be noted that of the 30 names he sent on that day, 25 of them had been people who Adams himself had appointed on the 2nd. For Jefferson, it was not about the individuals, but rather a matter of principle. Those were his appointments to make not Adams's. Despite the bipartisan nature of this batch of appointments, the exclusion of one of Adams's appointees would ultimately cause Jefferson some headache later on. Trust me, dear listener, when I say that you'll want to stick a pen in the name of William Marbury. There was another condition by which Jefferson deemed removals to be justified, and indeed, many of us would likely agree. If a government officer was guilty of official misconduct, Jefferson felt justified in ordering their removal. I can already see some hands going up in the audience. And yes, the question then becomes, what exactly defines quote-unquote official misconduct? As noted by Malone, quote, Most of the persons removed on this ground were customs officials or others within the domain of the vigilant Secretary of the Treasury, the most common charge being delinquency in accounts. Though the charges, then as now, were sometimes exaggerated for political purposes, it is undeniable that corruption in government was present even in the days of the early republic, with some officials using their positions for personal benefit. With these principles in mind, Jefferson and his cabinet, as it was, began to consider the problem on March 8th. One of the people up for consideration was the collector of the port of New Haven, Connecticut, Eliza Goodrich. Goodrich had been appointed to the post two weeks prior to Adams leaving office, so he met the first of Jefferson's two conditions. Not one prone to hasty action, though, Jefferson asked Attorney General Lincoln to reach out to a local Democratic-Republican leader in New Haven, Pierpont Edwards, to get his advice. J. 
Jefferson also followed up with his own letter to Edwards and to another Democratic-Republican in Connecticut, Gideon Granger. Now, if you'll indulge me for a moment, dear listener, I'd like to go all the way through the Goodrich drama before going back to the early days of the Jefferson administration, as I think it'll give you some sense of where some of the Federalist arguments against Jefferson came from and the delicate balance that Jefferson was trying to achieve in appeasing Democratic-Republicans in the North and East while not turning off moderate Federalists. Connecticut at the turn of the 19th century was described by later historian David Hackett Fisher as, quote, the most Federalist state in the nation. Edwards and Granger would thus argue that, for the good of the party's cause, Jefferson had to replace Goodrich, as well as other Federal officials in Connecticut. Granger, after expressing his prior hopes that some kind of peaceful resolution could have been attained, after the recent election, quote, I'm now fully convinced of this truth, that though defeat it, our foes are not conquered. Though they crouch, it is but secure their prey, that their exertions are and will be increased, and that finally the republic must expire at the feet of aristocracy or the faction be fully prostrated. As the Goodrich situation met his criteria and the local leaders urged that it was necessary, Jefferson and May ordered that Goodrich was to be removed from office. Per the recommendations of local leaders, he nominated the mayor of New Haven, Samuel Bishop. Despite the assurances of the people on the ground, there was a problem with this nomination that quickly became a focal point of criticism. While Goodrich was a relatively young man at 40 years old, Bishop was approaching 78 and would be hard-pressed to carry out the role of collector which was, quote, responsible for the great bulk of the revenue of the federal government. New Haven was one of many lesser ports, but it still served an important role in the federal apparatus. If Bishop couldn't do the job, then who would? It seems that a good portion of New Haven knew who the responsibility would fall to, Samuel's son, Abraham Bishop. Abraham was involved in local politics and had made a number of enemies in the community. Meanwhile, the expectation was that, with Abraham basically doing the job in his father's name, he would be named as collector upon his father's demise, which reeked of nepotism of the type that Democratic Republicans had accused Federalists of practicing. The protests from merchants in New Haven were not long in coming, but Jefferson would pay them little mind and instead responded citing the example of Benjamin Franklin, who he could personally attest had served the United States at home and abroad into his 80s. Samuel would remain in office until his death in 1803, at which time, as expected, his son Abraham was named to the post. Goodrich's ouster, meanwhile, became a story that Federalist pamphleteers drew on as an example of someone capable being turned out of office due to party favoritism. He was proof that the Democratic-Republicans were hypocrites and were not concerned with an individual's abilities, but rather favored factionalism over working in the nation's best interest. Goodrich would go on to have a lengthy career in public service, serving on the Connecticut Council for over a decade as a judge of a probate court, and in 1803, he took the seat that Bishop had previously held, becoming mayor of New Haven, a post he would hold until 1822. Let's leave Goodrich behind, however, and go back to Jefferson in March 1801. Jefferson was under pressure to act quickly to firm up the Democratic-Republican position, as he mentioned in a letter the day after his inauguration, in which he confessed that, quote, I feel a great load of public favor and of public expectation. 
More confidence is placed in me than my qualifications merit, and I dread the disappointment of my friends who have suffered themselves to count on me for too much. He knew that he would have to disappoint some people, especially since he had no intention of wantonly tossing Federalists out of offices, both in the higher and lower ranks of government. To further complicate matters, Jefferson had a goal of shrinking the size of government. As mentioned last episode, it was expected that Jefferson would shrink the size of the Navy if for no other reason than that Congress had passed a bill on March 3rd giving the president the authority, quote, to sell all naval vessels except 13 frigates and to take all except six of the latter out of active service. His intended but not yet Secretary of the Treasury Gallatin concurred in the idea of contracting the size of the Navy and, in a letter to Jefferson on March 14th, advocated a plan that would also shrink the size of the army and eliminate all internal taxes, which, by extension, would also eliminate the need for internal tax collectors and make the government as a whole smaller. Thus, Jefferson intended to make the already small number of positions that he could fill with supporters even smaller, and he refused to force out the Federalist incumbents in those offices en masse. It was painfully obvious that he would not be able to please everybody. However, he did manage to satisfy a few. Jefferson's vice president had recommended five Democratic Republicans for post in New York City, and Jefferson would see fit to appoint two of the five before the end of March, while a third would get a post later in his administration. Despite his refusal of the position in the Navy Department, Jefferson offered Chancellor Robert R. Livingston the post of Minister to France on February 24th after the House had confirmed his victory. Now, Livingston was not the only person offered that post in 1801, but the previous offer had come from Jefferson's predecessor. Adams had nominated James A. Bayard as U.S. Minister to France, but after his role in the election kerfuffle, Bayard decided to decline the nomination. Whether he had received word of Jefferson's intent or just saw the writing on the wall himself, it's all but certain that, even if Bayard had been confirmed, his appointment would have been revoked by Jefferson before he could even set sail. Thus, Jefferson put forward Livingston's name on March 5th along with his cabinet nominations, with Livingston receiving a quick confirmation. And on March 12th, Livingston sealed the deal when he wrote to Jefferson that, quote, I had determined to take upon me no new office, but to endeavor to promote your interest, which I believe to be intimately connected with that of my country in the station I now hold. But, flattered by your favorable opinions and desirous of complying with your wishes, I will, with pleasure, undertake the mission you mention. Not only was Livingston seen to be a worthy appointment for his abilities as demonstrated through his career, with Livingston having served as the first Secretary of Foreign Affairs in the Confederation government, and with over 20 years as Chancellor of New York under his belt, but it was also a nod to the political power of the Livingston family in New York, a state which had been crucial for Jefferson to carry in the recent election. Other key posts, however, would remain in Federalist hands for the time being. Despite the urgings of James Madison and other Virginians, Jefferson decided to retain the Federalist Rufus King of New York as U.S. Minister to Britain. King did not meet his qualifications for removal, for, per the evidence that he had, there had been no professional misconduct, but rather, King had served with distinction and had been in place since Washington's tenure. This wasn't to say that he couldn't be replaced with a Democratic-Republican when he finally decided to vacate the post, but so long as he was willing to remain, King would occupy this integral post in U.S. foreign relations. 
Even Adams' son-in-law, Colonel William Smith, was retained as surveyor of the Port of New York. Despite the clamoring of Democratic-Republican leaders, Jefferson would remain firm to his principle that, quote, malconduct is a just ground of removal. Mere difference of political principle is not. In this time of transition, Jefferson also had to think about his living arrangements. In the days immediately following his inauguration, Jefferson had remained at Conrad and McMunn's, quote, using only his bedchamber and the parlor where he received appointments taking his meals in the tavern's dining room along with other guests. However, there was a large mansion on Pennsylvania Avenue that was being prepared for his use. Not only was it just a matter of moving furniture and decorations around, but it must be remembered that the president's mansion was still unfinished. Jefferson would take a tour of his new home with the commissioners of the District of Columbia in the first week after the inauguration, and he would find much that he felt needed change. As described by historian William Seale, in Jefferson's view, the president's mansion reeked of, quote, an old-fashioned Anglicism. It had been Washington's folly from the start, built in a style and on a scale that epitomized the aristocratic principles of the despised Hamilton. Here was a house magnificent beyond the grandest in America, albeit standing in a barren field, flanked a few hundred yards to each side by the red brick executive office buildings. This was not the kind of house that Jefferson, the self-styled architect, would have built. But in it, Jefferson saw a mold with which he might be able to work. The first changes of the house were small but significant. A wooden privy had been constructed beside the house in 1800 at the order of the district commissioners, but Jefferson ordered that it be demolished. Again, from Seal, quote, A presidential necessary house in full view of the public must have struck the fastidious Jefferson as ludicrous. Instead, he ordered for two water closets to be installed at either end of the house upstairs. Also, despite Adams' note to Jefferson on February 20th, informing him that he was leaving the horses and carriages that had been bought with public funds for Jefferson to use and hopefully save him some expense, as discussed in episode 2.24, the new president ordered those to be sold. Though the coaches had been bought secondhand, Jefferson saw them as a symbol of extravagance at the public expense. He would only retain a, quote, one-horse market cart. Jefferson also planned for changes in how the existing rooms would be used. The room at the west end of the house that had been used for the presidential levies would now be his office, as he would not continue the practice of hosting levies, something that he saw as a nod towards monarchical practices. The room that the Adamses had used as a breakfast parlor would instead serve as a formal sitting room in Jefferson's administration. The bedroom of Adams's private secretary would instead be Jefferson's family dining room. He planned to transform what had been the entrance hall into a drawing room. Because of the blue in the upholstery he chose, this room would become known by the name it's known today, the Blue Room. All the changes that he called for meant that James Hoban, the architect of the mansion, would be, quote, called back to supervise the work. Used to living in a house under construction as he was, Jefferson would finally make the move from the boarding house to the president's house on March 19th. He would not remain in these new lodgings for long, however. Malone cites Jefferson's search for a Navy secretary as detaining him longer than he would have liked. As mentioned earlier and discussed more at length last episode, Chancellor Robert R. Livingston had been his first choice for the post, but Livingston had refused the appointment. 
Thus, Jefferson had turned Senator John Langdon of New Hampshire, but Langdon had likewise given his apologies and declination. After at least securing outgoing Secretary Benjamin Soddard's agreement to stay in place until Jefferson could find a replacement, Jefferson wrote to Representative Samuel Smith of Maryland on March 9th, asking him, quote, to dispose of your private affairs as if to take a share in those of the public and give us your aid as Secretary of the Navy. Astute listeners will recognize this name, but there's also a bit of possible confusion here. We have mentioned Representative Samuel Smith before, but he's not to be confused with Samuel Harrison Smith, who is the editor of the National Intelligence here, married to Margaret Bayard Smith. We've actually been talking about Representative Smith for much longer. He first appeared in episode 1.32 as playing a role in the debate over the appropriations for the Jay Treaty. Then, in episode 2.24, he popped up again as a key player in the resolution of the presidential election of 1800 in the House. Smith was the one who had been Jefferson's unofficial go-between with Senator James Bayard of Delaware, Margaret Bayard Smith's cousin, just to make all of this really complicated. We won't rehash all that here, but just know that he was Jefferson's man to the hilt in the election fiasco, and thus Jefferson sought to bring him on to his administration in an official capacity. Jefferson saw numerous advantages in this appointment. Smith had worked with Federalists in the past and was from a more centralized state that had a nautical heritage. As Jefferson wrote to Smith, his assumption of the post, quote, will favor the policy of drawing our naval resources towards the center from which their benefits and protection may be extended equally to all the parts rather than being more heavily concentrated in the Northeast. He warned Smith that, quote, if you refuse, I must abandon from necessity what I've been so falsely charged of doing from choice, the expectation of procuring to our country such benefits as may compensate the expenses of their Navy. Smith would be back in Baltimore before he responded. He admitted that he had delayed in replying and that, after having considered the opportunity, quote, my private affairs are such as to preclude the possibility of doing justice to the office. My constituents have also expressed in strong terms their disapprobation of my leaving them. He recommended a Mr. John Mason of Georgetown, but Jefferson instead turned to William Jones of Pennsylvania, who had just been elected to the U.S. House. Jefferson, in his reply to Smith, indicated that, though Jones had not yet given his final answer, he anticipated another rejection. Though he doesn't state as such, by the time Jefferson wrote to Smith again, he had received Albert Gallatin's report of March 14th on his proposed fiscal policy for the government. And as reducing the size of the Navy played a large role in the plans to reduce the national debt, it is likely that the president realized that he needed someone he could trust in place at the Navy Department to start enacting the administration's goals sooner rather than later. The Navy may not be a priority for Jefferson, but reducing the national debt was. And a holdover from the Adams administration would no longer do in the post. Jefferson warned Smith that, quote, if I receive Jones's refusal on Thursday night, you shall hear from me Friday night, and may be here, I hope, yourself on Saturday night. Apparently, Smith had told Jefferson that if he couldn't find anyone for the post, Smith would agree to serve as an interim Secretary of the Navy. Sure enough, two days later, Jefferson wrote to Smith of Jones's refusal and that, quote, I must avail the public of your kind offer to accept the office for a little while. Thus, on March 30th, 
Jefferson was able to write to Benjamin Stoddart that he could finally fulfill his express wish for retirement, instructing Stoddart to hand over the department to Samuel Smith and that, quote, I beg leave to repeat here my acknowledgments for the time and leisure which your accommodation has furnished me, fulfilling a department of difficulty and importance. Accept assurances of my high consideration and respect. Though not an ideal solution, when Jefferson left town on April 1st, a Democratic-Republican was finally at the head of the Navy Department. After leaving office, Stoddard would infrequently correspond with Jefferson up to the very end of his presidency, so he may very well pop up again before we're done. However, he will not be a key player in government moving forward. So let's take a second to discuss Stoddard's legacy. Later naval historians Charles Oscar Paulin and Dudley Knox would respectively write of this first Secretary of the Navy that he was, quote, a worthy and efficient administrator, and that, quote, great credit is due Secretary Stoddard for his able direction of the Navy under difficult circumstances. Leonard White would add to this with the following, quote, hardworking, conscientious, and experienced in the management of others, he, Stoddard, succeeded in his task, the building arming, equipping, and maintenance at sea of a reborn American Navy. Beyond just his role in managing his department, Stoddard provided a breath of fresh air for the president who appointed him. As John Adams' first cabinet appointment, Stoddard served Adams admirably and loyally, giving Adams the support he needed and could not get from the cabinet members that he had inherited from Washington. For someone who performed so admirably, one can't help but feel a twinge of sadness that, after a job well done, Stoddart likely knew he was handing off the post so that his successor could work to dismantle everything the first Navy secretary had done. On April 1st, the president departed from Washington, D.C., bound for Monticello, to attend to personal matters. For all the criticism that had been lodged at Adams for being away from the seat of government for too long, Less than a month after his inauguration, Jefferson was already hitting the road. Malone explains this away by asserting that, quote, he, i.e. Jefferson, could not do much organizing or working out of procedure until May, a couple of months after his inauguration. The ship of state, which he proposed to put on its Republican tack, got underway very slowly, if indeed she may be said to have left the harbor. While I feel that this is giving Jefferson slack that Adams did not enjoy, to Malone's credit, At this point, there was not a major crisis like the one that Adams faced upon his becoming president. Peace with France was at hand. All was quiet on the domestic front. The nation was by and large humming along. This peaceful interlude will allow us an opportunity to get caught up on the situation abroad and start to explore Jefferson's plans for foreign policy in our next episode, which I would like to call Affairs Foreign and Domestic. Until then, Thanks again to Moxie for providing the intro quote for this episode, and be sure to check out Your Brain on Facts. A link to Moxie's podcast can be found on the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. While there, you can also check out the episode guides to get caught up on past episodes, explore the many options to listen to the podcast, and learn more about the ways you can help support the podcast. One of those ways is by rating and reviewing the podcast, And I wanted to share a five-star review that I recently received. The title of it is Like a Historical Soap Opera, and the listener goes on to explain that, quote, By that, I mean I was quickly hooked on the storyline with all of its twist, suspense, drama, and all-too-human and surprisingly relatable 
personalities. I never knew what I didn't know about the presidents until I started listening. Great job. Thanks so much for your kind words, dear listener. And for the rest of you, if you have a moment to spare, I'd greatly appreciate it if you'd leave your own rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or anywhere else that has those options to help other folks learn why they should tune in. To all of you who share new episodes on social media, I greatly appreciate your help in getting the word out. Speaking of, if you'd like to follow me on social media, I can be found on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast, all one word. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, take care, dear friends. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.